it amid lots of news, but the White House declared this week Made in America Week. The label serves to promote one of President Trump's most prominent campaign promises. We'll produce goods in America to keep manufacturing jobs in America. One of you. No longer are we going to allow other countries to break the rules, steal our jobs, and drain our wealth. And it has been drained. It has been drained. Much of Trump's success in the 2016 election has been attributed to his effective communication of that economic message and his promise to bring back jobs to America's working class. Process for the future. But we're going to stand up for our companies and maybe most importantly for our workers. For decades, Washington. So, six months into his presidency, how is President Trump doing? How much influence does a president have to actually bring back jobs lost to an evolving economy? What are the levers that the office of the presidency allows that can revive a manufacturing industry that's been in decline for decades? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Today's episode seeks to answer this key question. Trump promised to bring back jobs to working class Americans, so can he do that? Later in the show, we'll talk to Pulitzer Prize winning Post reporter and author of Janesville, an American story, Amy Goldstein, about what happens to a town when its factory closes. And we talk to the president of Alliance for American Manufacturing, Scott Paul, about the challenges of reviving manufacturing jobs in America today. But first, we have our senior economics correspondent, Damian Paletta, back on the show. Damian, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So manufacturing jobs in this country, they've decreased drastically since 2008, but really since the 1970s, they've been decreasing. What are the major causes of the loss of these kinds of jobs? Globalization, quite frankly, is the, is the biggest cause. You know, when you think about North Carolina used to be the furniture headquarters of the world. People used to get all of their furniture, beds, sofas, everything from North Carolina, and that all changed in kind of the 70s and 80s because in China it was just so much cheaper to produce. And so the U.S. manufacturing industries had a really hard time being able to retain jobs, retain middle class jobs, when a lot of there's just been all this competition from all over the world because they're able to pay lower wages, there's less environmental rules. And they found kind of cheap ways to ship their products to the U.S. And they found a lot of American consumers who were eager to buy things at a lower price, which has just kind of made it, you know, fuel the system. And there are some other causes that people have ascribed to to the reason for this decline in jobs. One of them is automation and technology. How much is that responsible for this? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think it's it's hard to tell exactly, put a number on it. But obviously we've seen, you know, for example, a few years ago I went to a water bottling plant in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where, I mean, like millions of bottles of water a day. And there's 300 people working there. I mean, you think it would take thousands and thousands of people, right? right? But they have it down to such a science because the technology is incredible that they're able to do it with a smaller staff. And so that obviously has had this big adjustment for a lot of middle-class Americans who were kind of thought they could settle into these into these middle-class jobs, and those jobs no longer exist. There's always going to be developments in technology and innovation, and that's great. That's what makes this country so great and what makes the world so great, but we have to be able to adjust as a society. And some jobs adjust faster than others, obviously, and manufacturing is one industry that has a, had a harder time being as fleet as foot because they some of these jobs are mechanical. Some people have a very specific skill, and it's hard for them to pivot to something completely different. 
So what happens to a town when the source of its manufacturing jobs disappears? Amy Goldstein is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who spent years visiting Janesville, Wisconsin, as its main factory closed and the town struggled to move on. Amy is the author of Janesville, an American Story. Here's what she had to say. Well, the idea that I had um, after the Great Recession was ending was that we all knew that the unemployment rate was still very high. And we knew that there was a lot of political fighting going on over whether the government's economic policies were helping or not helping. But I thought that there wasn't that much attention to the question of what it's really like to have work go away, what it's like for families, what it's like for a community. So I wanted to find a place that would be a good setting to take a very close look at this. And Janesville was appealing for several reasons. One, I wanted a place that had lost a lot of jobs, and Janesville definitely qualified. 2008, 2009, the county that Janesville's in lost about 9,000 jobs. And Janesville had been a very stable place for decades and decades. It had the nation's oldest General Motors assembly plant before it closed down. So that work had been around for generations, and people thought it was going to keep going. How have the lives of this people, of the people in this town, changed? So what were some of the secondary effects beyond just workers losing their jobs? What were some of the other things that happened to this town? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that the jobs that vanished in Janesville were not just auto worker jobs. They weren't just General Motors jobs. There were about 3,000 GM jobs that disappeared within several months. Then there were jobs that disappeared from thousands of other people um, who had worked for suppliers for the assembly plant. But then beyond that, if you think about the effect that that would have on a community's little businesses, restaurants closed because not enough people could afford to go out to eat, a daycare center closed because moms and dads who are out of work didn't need a place for their kids to stay during the day. So there were all these ripple effects. One thing that is very fascinating in the book is that it shatters some of the conventional wisdom that surrounds job creation. Specifically, you looked into whether job retraining and going back to community college actually helps people reenter the workforce. So, so did you see evidence that that actually helps, that these efforts work? Well, when you were asking about why I chose Janesville, another reason was that it has a small technical college that does a lot of vocational training. And if you think about what economic policies Republicans and Democrats agree on, there isn't much intersection, but both parties tend to think that job retraining is a really good idea. So I was really interested in what I could see on the ground about how this was working in one community that had lost all this good work. So it turned out that even though this college tried really hard to help these factory workers who were going back to school, it didn't always turn out that well at the other end. I mean, if you think about it, You spent a decade or two or three, you're in your 30s or 40s, you haven't been in school for half a lifetime, you're out of work, you might not have liked school in the first place because maybe that's why you chose to take a good working class factory job. Paid was pretty good, $28 an hour at General Motors when that plant closed down. Suddenly you don't know whether you can feed dinner to your family and you have to study on top of that. I mean, that's a really challenging, anxiety-producing thing. But in addition to interviewing lots of people at the college and lots of laid-off workers who went back to school, I also did a statistical analysis with help from some labor economists of what happened in that part of southern Wisconsin to people who became unemployed, who had and had not retrained. And a few years after these jobs vanished, it turned out very surprisingly that people who had not retrained were more likely to be working 
all four seasons of the year and had less of a pay drop from before the recession to a few years afterwards. Did you find evidence as to why that's the case? Well, I think that there are a lot of possible explanations. Probably the simplest is that even though the college is called Blackhawk Technical College, tried very hard to coordinate with those businesses that were left in town and try to figure out where jobs might still lie. People went into those programs that they thought were the most promising fields, but there weren't always jobs at the end. So it's very hard, no matter how good the retraining is, to compensate for a lack of jobs in an area. Was there any resistance to job retraining? So people who'd worked in manufacturing jobs, now they were being trained for jobs that were in other industries, jobs that might require them to do things that they prefer not to do, like sit behind a desk or, let's say, clean bedpans at a hospital or do things that they might not want to do. Was there any resistance to retraining? Well, one of the things that I found really kind of striking and a little bit heartbreaking was that people really wanted to know what would get them back to something like the pay they used to have. They weren't really thinking about, could I handle working with bedpans or the sight of blood? They were just worried about what would get them back to the pay they had grown accustomed to. So Janesville is a longtime Democratic voting county, and we talk about the working class putting Trump in the White House, mostly because of his economic message. It appears that Janesville didn't actually do this. Can you explain why not? So in 2012, um, I was in Janesville on election night 2012, the county voted 62% for the re-election of Barack Obama. This time, it voted 52% for Hillary Clinton. So there was a drop, but it was still just Democratic in its voting. When I looked at the numbers, it turned out that there were no more Republican voters, but there was a big drop-off in the number of Democrats who turned out to vote in the county. Why do you think that is? Well, the numbers themselves don't say the why, but if you know one had to guess based on what's happened elsewhere in the country, Hillary Clinton might not have been as attractive a candidate as Barack Obama was to some people. You know, there's been a lot of you know analysis of should she have put more time into visiting some of these midwestern states, including Wisconsin, that perhaps her campaign had taken a little bit too much for granted. Much of Trump's campaign success has been attributed to that strong economic message. And in keeping with that, early in his presidency, Trump brought together 28 business and union leaders to work together on the president's manufacturing jobs initiative. One of those 28 leaders is Scott Paul. He's the president of Alliance for American Manufacturing. Here's Scott. One of Trump's campaign promises was to bring back American manufacturing jobs. But let's talk through some of the specific ways that he might be able to actually come through on that promise. Are there specific policies that would shift the economy toward manufacturing? Absolutely. There are a number of public policies that can make a real difference in whether or not our economy can generate manufacturing jobs. At the macro level, you have things like our tax code, which can encourage investment in our economy and production in our economy, or offshoring. You have trade policy that can promote exports and can provide some trade enforcement against unfairly traded imports coming in. You can increase what's called aggregate demand through public policy. And the simple way of saying that is invest in infrastructure or invest in research and development and invest in workers. And at least rhetorically, the president has said he wants all of this. I think there are real questions about what he can 
get done. But that suite of policies is probably the best prescription to try to elevate manufacturing employment. I will quickly say there are some things that can wash all of this away that's completely beyond the control of any president. Things like a recession or exchange rates, if the dollar is overly strong, we just won't perform well uh, in, in manufacturing. So there are limitations to what a president can do, but it's really dependent upon how much leadership, how much effort, uh, and how much policy uh, gets done. Right. But there are all of these external factors that are contributing to the decline in manufacturing jobs. Which of these things is kind of the largest contributor? Are, are we talking automation? Is it globalization? Or is it regulations? Or, or even is it something else that I haven't listed? <laughs> it's a very good question. And I think there's a lot of people who think that why even talk about manufacturing because it's all going to be automated and robots and there's, there's not going to be any jobs there. But if you look over the past 18 years or so, the primary cause of manufacturing job loss has not been robots or automation. It's been Chinese imports. And there are MIT economists and there are Yale economists and there are economists at the Federal Reserve who all agree with that. Are there specific policies that the Trump administration could implement in regards to China that would change things? Absolutely. I think there are. And I think that President Obama did some work on this as well and even acknowledged that the deal we gave China in 2000 was a raw deal. He used to he used to tease his Clinton aides about that, say, you set me up for failure, man. Why did you do this? And so I think the question is, how is it managed? And we've seen ups and downs with Trump and China. We, we've seen tough rhetoric. You know, we saw this 100-day plan. We're going to name China as a currency manipulator. And then what happens? We don't name China as a currency manipulator. In fact, he says, I want them to do work on North Korea. I'm not going to name them. And we also see this 100-day plan kind of fizzle out. It just expired, and there hasn't been a lot of progress. And so it shows that there are real obstacles to doing this. Uh, but, but I will say tough trade actions is a piece of this. And I, I know the steel industry, and I've seen steel companies who fully expect will have a bigger market here for domestic steel, and they're making some investments in their factories, and, and you're seeing that. So believe it or not, it is possible to bring some of those steel jobs back. Is that a good idea, though? Do we want to be sort of moving in a direction where we're bringing old jobs back, or do we want to be inventing new jobs? Look, I think we want to do both. Any manufacturer in business in the United States right now, almost by definition, is an advanced manufacturer. Think of Tesla, for example, which is an amazing product. There are these industrial robots that look like they're straight out of the Terminator movie. There's also about 3,500 workers who are in that factory. So it is possible to have robots and workers at the same time. It's not mutually exclusive. So I think that we ought to, we ought to value manufacturing and understand that it's one of the few types of economic development that can spur other things. You're one of 28 business and union leaders who are working with Trump on this manufacturing initiative. Can you speak a little bit, give us a little bit of an idea of what these meetings are like, what it's like to have business leaders and union leaders together trying to solve one problem? What's that been like? 
It's a great question, and I will say a lot of this has, didn't, has been done in the virtual world or in, a, in the conference call world, and it, it's kind of like Trump is in the administration is picking a team of, I'm not going to describe myself this way, but a team of all-stars, and you plug them in where they make the most sense. So if you, if you want to talk about tax policy, you bring this group in. If you want to talk about apprenticeships, you bring that group in. But I will say that I think that we've made a lot of progress. I've been part of an effort with labor and business to try to get some good apprenticeship rules on the books, for example. And again, I think that the intake has been there. Has the focus been there? Has the policy been there? I, th- I think that there are mixed results for that. I mean, we're, we're recording this during Made in America Week, uh, right. but instead it's Jeff Sessions Week, right. and who's the eighth person in the in the Russia meeting week? Right. And it's everything except for Made in America Week. So a lot of these efforts are, are really getting stepped on by the administration in other ways. How much of Trump's influence is felt in those meetings, like directives from the president that you guys are inclined to take on? How much is it direct influence from the president? Well, I think that in some cases, you know, there are ideas that have caught his attention. Apprenticeship is a great example of that. You know, a few business leaders have connected with him about this issue, and he's like, we want to find a way to create 5 million new apprenticeships. Uh, In other cases, you you know, we, we know he feels strongly about the steel industry. And how can we find ways to stabilize the steel industry in the United States of America? I know that's very important to him. So how will this group then measure success? How will they decide we have done what Trump promised or we've done what's in the best interest of our constituents? We've done this. When, when does that moment happen? Yeah, well, I will say I am, I'm participating in this not because uh, of, of, of achieving a Trump goal, but because I believe very strongly in American manufacturing and creating a brighter future for, for factory workers, and I want to promote that. And I've, I, we, we've opposed some Trump policies, and we've encouraged him to do some other things. But the definition of success for me is to reestablish an ecosystem that is friendly to developing manufacturing jobs, as well as to retain and invest in those industries where we have a lot of know-how, the auto sector or aerospace or even the basic industries like steel that we've done very well for a long time. And to me, that that is the most important metric. It's not to settle this debate between is it automation or is it trade. You know, to to me, that's more of a philosophical debate than anything else. But it's like, how do we create a brighter future for the factory workers in America? Well, that's a great segue to the question that we'll end on, which is, from your perspective, what does a manufacturing job of 2020 look like? First of all, manufacturing is a very diverse sector. It makes everything from cowboy chaps to fire trucks, as we saw right. at the at the White House this week. So there's <laughs> there's there's a lot going on. But to me, first of all, it's a good job. It's a family supporting job. It's a job with good benefits. Uh, it's a job that requires some skills beyond high school. It's a job that you can do with both your brain and your hands. And I think by definition, that is what a manufacturing job is going to look like. And, you know, people like to look at manufacturing and say, oh, it's dark, 
dirty, dangerous. It's yesterday. When you talk to people who actually are in manufacturing, they have a tremendous amount of job satisfaction, even if they've faced incredible odds. And, and they do get very frustrated because they feel buffeted by these winds of globalization or policy or, or corporations or whatever it is. But, but they, they value their work, and I hope Americans will as well. Okay, Damien. So Scott Paul was saying that the future of manufacturing is not the economy of yesterday. But is the economy of the future something that Donald Trump even imagines? I mean, he never described upward mobility or diversity of jobs. That's not really what he campaigned on. He campaigned on bringing back the old jobs. Well, sure. So he talks a lot about coal jobs, for example. And that really resonates in West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania. They're not going to bring back thousands and thousands of coal jobs. It's just the world has changed. And that's just not the energy source that it was, you know, 50 years ago. The challenge is the president talks a lot about economic growth. And, and that's true. The more the economy grows, the better everyone tends to do. The problem is we've seen the stock market has really done well in the past few months. Not everyone's in the stock market, right? The wealthiest Americans tend to be in the stock market. The middle class tends to have some exposure to the stock market, whether it's a 401k or something like that. But a lot of Americans in that bottom kind of quartile who are not in the stock market. And so when you have an economy where the performance right now tends to be stock market focused, you really have the, the American public is being pulled apart, right? The rich are getting really rich. The middle class is starting to separate a little bit more because they have some exposure. They're benefiting. But the poorest Americans and the low-income Americans and the people who are working in retail jobs and construction, they can get left behind even more. And that's, that's the frustration that kind of led to Trump's election in the first place, right? This, people, this feeling that people were getting left behind and they weren't benefiting from kind of the economic recovery that followed the financial crisis. And so that could be actually something that bubbles up in the 2018 midterms and, and even in the 2020 elections is this frustration that, hey, if everyone else is getting rich, if the stock market's up 20 percent and my wages are up 1 percent, you know, that's not fair and, it's, and my life is, needs to improve, you know, and you promised it would. And that's something that the president will be judged on. Yeah. I mean, at what point will his most loyal, the most loyal members of his base, I think it's like 30 percent of America now, when will those people stop and sort of take inventory of about whether or not their lives are any better and make a judgment on the president's performance? It's hard at four and a half percent unemployment to for people to really get frustrated with him, I think. And so um, once if this economy holds and we stay at around four and a half percent unemployment and some companies do, you know, rev the manufacturing back up. You know, there will be some some signs of improvement and people won't feel like they've been let down. The risk is obviously when you're kind of banking your success on the stock market's performance, the stock market is going to come down. It does. Right. I mean, historically, it'll, it, 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 you're always safest to have money in the stock market because it would historically go up. But there's times of pain and those times kind of come every, you know, eight or nine years. It depends. And so inevitably, there's going to be some sort of correction or blip. And does that kind of wash out some of these lower income American jobs or does the economy just continue to chug along if he can get tax reform done or infrastructure done? Maybe he can sustain, you know, this kind of economic pace and help, you know, create more jobs and get more growth. But if some of those things kind of stumble and there's some sort of unforeseen problem in the economy, then I think you could see a lot of anxiety both in the White House and also across America because they feel like 
these jobs they were promised aren't being delivered. So Trump advocates for products made in America. This week is Made in America Week. Production here is really important to him, according to his speeches, according to his agenda. Yet his company and his daughter's company manufacture many of their goods abroad. Has Trump said anything about this? He has not said anything about this. And I, I don't even I don't think he's tweeted about it either. I mean, obviously, with the with this sort of Made in America idea, it's always easier said than done. And especially when you're talking about clothes or consumer goods. A lot of that is is produced overseas. And so, you know, this was kind of almost an inconvenient truth for the administration to have to deal with during their Made in America week. Trump says he can bring back factory jobs that have been sent overseas. Can he do that without Congress? This seems like something that would require laws. He's promised to scrap existing trade agreements, though he's kind of come back and forth on that. Great question. One of the things that they've been looking at is ways to tax or impose tariffs on companies that move overseas and try to ship their products back in the United States. And so if he imposes these tariffs or taxes, that could have an impact. That could force companies to move back to the U.S. or else it'll be really costly for them to send their products here. Now, if he's going to create a new tax, that's going to take Congress. And that's controversial because a lot of Republicans believe that kind of flies in the face of free trade. But if it's a tariff, it could be he might have more leverage to do. And so I think that's something we're going to have to watch really closely. The administration's been very conflicted internally on their own on this. Some within the White House think it'd be, you know, it'd risk creating a trade war if they do it. Others think it's a way to kind of send a signal to the Chinese that, you know, you're not going to keep taking advantage of our workers and our businesses, and this has to stop. And that brings us to our final question in our traditional format here. Trump promised to bring back jobs to working-class Americans, so can he do that? I think he can. What kinds of jobs is the big question. And can he bring back the jobs that he sort of seems to romanticize from the 50s and 60s? No, those jobs are are gone. And the question is, when can the White House sort of accept that they need to focus on a new kind of 2017 and beyond job? Or are they going to still stay focused on jobs of yesterday? And the sooner they focus on those jobs of today and tomorrow, probably the more they can get done. Great. Damien, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys can follow Damien on Twitter at Damien Paletta. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. Review us, keep listening, like us on social media, share this with your friends, send us your ideas. We are so grateful. We'll keep them coming to you. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the exceptional Carol Alderman with design help this week from Rachel Orr and logo art from Loren Boglio. Hi, I'm James Holman, national political correspondent for The Washington Post and author of the Daily 202 newsletter. I'm excited to announce we're launching a new audio briefing called The Daily 202's Big Idea. Every morning, I'll give you a quick summary of the day's biggest political headlines, as well as analysis of one of the day's most important stories. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and on your Amazon Echo device or Google Home. And by the way, if you want to subscribe to The Daily 202's email newsletter, you can do so by visiting WashingtonPost.com newsletters. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you'll listen. Thanks. The Washington 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 Post. Post.